You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. Now keep in mind, you can only see the stars when it's dark. So God brings him out in the darkness and says, Look at the light in the sky. If you are able to number them, tell me. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, because you can't divide the Holy Spirit. And when birds of prey came down on carcasses, when things that seemed like the Holy Spirit came down, Abraham knew to drive them away. Now listen, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then in the gospel, it says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then Jesus, God, begins to weep, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll keep the children here. God is up to something this morning. We'll finish the worship, worship service after we preach. To those of you who are on time, this is going to make a lot of sense. To the ones who come in now, it'll be weird. The word that was spoken said, light and darkness to me are both alike. And when you're in that season of darkness, know that the light is with you. We're going to start with Abraham. Abraham has just come from a series of victories. Lot went into captivity, and Abraham, with his 318 strong, mighty men, went and rescued Lot. Abraham gets back from victory, and kings are coming out to him, giving him stuff. 
How many would like a blessing like Abraham? And Abraham's just saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to give me anything. Just give my men whatever they need. And then the king of Salem comes out and says, blessed are you by God most high. And blessed are your offspring. And then God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to know one thing. I'm your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham's response, yeah, but. Have you ever known a yeah, but person where you give the best advice and you know you nailed it that time? Like you, they asked you a question and you texted them the exact right advice with the exact right emojis. Everything was on point. You used the fire emoji the right way. You knew what face to put on there. It just all was perfect. And they're like, yeah, I know, but. And you're just like, good thing we're texting because I'd probably kill you right now because that was amazing advice. You should be sending me an offering and thanking me for the way that I do what I do. Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham says, right, but I don't have a child. Always after blessing, always after blessing, are we most prone to feeling despair. After the victory, after he rescues, when the light is shining on his life and blessing is entering his life, that is the space where when things are the brightest, we see the most gross realities of who we are. There is a strong to quite strong possibility that when life is rough for a long period of time, we begin to not feel as bad as if life got a little bit bad after a good season. Because when things are good, our brain goes into overthinking mode, our brain goes into overassessing mode, our cynicism and our pessimism begin to come out. And so here's Abraham after all these victories. And then God affirms what all the men have been affirming. The king of Sodom's offering him gifts. King of Salem is offering him a blessing. God comes out and says, everything they gave you, I'm your exceedingly great. I'm going to be better than all the riches they could possibly give you. And Abraham says, yeah, but. And he falls into this place of despair. God leads off by saying, Abraham, do not fear. See, before Abraham ever can even say, yeah, but I continue childless, God already knows that he's about to go through a season of darkness. God doesn't jump in and say, Abraham, I'm your exceedingly great reward. He says, Abraham, fear not. I'm your exceedingly great reward. God immediately lets Abraham know, I know you better than you know you. I know that you're despairing. And no one else could look at you and ever think that you're despairing right now because everything looks great. But I know that you're afraid. Because I know there's something that you believe I promised you and you don't have it yet. And I know that all the wealth and riches in the world and even my very presence right now at this point in your life isn't as important to you as that blessing. God doesn't reject him. God doesn't call him an idolater. God doesn't cast him away. God first comes and says, I know. And then he says, in your idolatry, I want you to know I'm your exceedingly great reward. Look at how he deals with our sin. He already knows Abraham is not content with him. And he starts by saying, Abraham, it's okay, don't be afraid. How fatherly, how motherly is that kind of tone and tenor from God? I know you, and I know everyone thinks it's good right now, but you and I both know it's not. So before I do anything, I want you to know I love you, and you don't have to be afraid. God is always saying that to you. There is never a time where he's not saying that to you. I don't care if you can hear him or feel him or not. Our sinfulness will not always let us feel him the way he's supposed to. 
Your pastor is here to tell you God is always saying that to you, 100% of the time. He is always saying, I know you, I love you, do not be afraid. Always saying that. We can hear preachers saying things like, what you want, God has something better for you than that. So let go of what you want because what God has for you is better. And this story proves that that's maybe sometimes right, but not all the time because Abraham wanted a son and God wanted to give him a son. It's just that when we focus on the blessing, we don't ever take into consideration the kind of person we need to become to be able to receive that blessing with thanksgiving and not lust. Listen to this. We often let what we think should be rob us of the joy of what is. We often let what we think things should be rob us of the joy of what is. I'm going to say it one more time. Just write it down and stuff. Take it in. Sometimes we just got to let something hover in the room for a minute. We often let what we think should be rob us of the joy of what is. I'm seeing what is and I know it's good, but the way I think things should be is robbing me of that joy. And God, like Krista just prophesied, he enters that mess and he feels it with us. Look what happens here. What we want isn't less than what God has. What we want is just lacking the understanding that we may need to become a new wineskin first. I always knew I was supposed to be a pastor. And if I didn't know, my mom told me 18.5 trillion times that I was called to be a pastor. Nothing can prepare you for what happens when God gives you the thing that he's always destined for you. You get that blessing a month too early and it crushes you. You get it right on time and guess what? It crushes you. You just knew that was going to happen and so you're a little bit better at being crushed. I think I'm just getting better at being crushed. I think that's... Yes, we, we, we say, I know God has promised me this, but we don't know. Are we ready for that child to come home? Are we ready for that healing? Why does Jesus go up to people and say, to blind people, what do you want me to do for you? As if he doesn't know, but he's letting them know. The minute your eyes can see again, you got responsibility on you now. We think we're ready for the thing God promised. And these stories, specifically the story with Abraham and even the story of Joseph, which we won't get into, what God promises and the time of the fulfillment, there has to be discipleship and transformation in that process. The sun has to go down. You have to see God's light in the darkness. God has to do peculiar things at night for the wineskin to change so the new wine and the promise can come to fruition. If we avoid nighttime, if our whole Christianity is one giant nightlight to make sure we never have to be in the darkness, we will never become the kinds of people that can handle the blessings that God has for us. And I'm not just talking about material ones. I'm talking about the blessing of maybe more souls coming to the kingdom. The blessing of more people needing you. The blessing of people recognizing the joy and the love of the Lord on your life and the demand that that will pull from your life. Now, if we don't see those things as blessings, we will have an altar call in a minute, and I will personally pray for everybody. 
deep gloom comes after the promise. God says, I promise you, I'm going to give you a son. And then he takes him outside and he says, look at the stars. And in that moment, Abraham says, you're right, you are going to give me a son. I always thought it was interesting that Abraham sees stars and he knows that God's going to give him a son. And it's the wise men who followed a star to the son of God himself. God does amazing things at night with a little bit of light. But even after the promise and even after the assurance and the trust, it says specifically the sun went down and deep gloom fell on Abraham. After the promise, after the wrestling, and after the trust, the sun goes down and deep gloom and dread fall onto Abraham. Why? Fear and darkness come from thinking the self has to be good enough to earn and to handle the blessing that God has. Fear and dread come when there's too much self-trust in our life. When we think we're the reason, when we think we're the linchpin of getting what God has for us and then maintaining what God has for us. Let me tell you right now, here's one of the ways that you can know you can trust me. I don't think I can do this job well. I need you and the Holy Spirit to hold up my hands so Salem can keep winning the war on the battlefield. Any pastor who says you can trust me for any other reason is not trustworthy. Parents, do not think you can do a good job. Husbands, do not think you can do a good job. Wives, do not think you can, besides Jacqueline, do not think you can do a good job. This is not a Tony Robbins motivational talk, I'm sorry. But the reality is this, if we think we got this, or we think we're supposed to got this, fear and anxiety show up because anxiety is the product of thinking you were responsible for everything and realizing you can't be. Anxiety is your alarm system telling you you're trusting yourself too much. And so the sun has to go down, and God has to show you something, and it will be, Abraham's is all public now. I could talk for weeks about the various things God has shown me in night seasons of my life. Everyone's going to have one. Abraham's is really weird. God tells Abraham, go get a bunch of animals. Just humorously follow the logic here. I want a son. I'm going to give you a son. I don't think you're going to give me a son. Look at the stars. I put them there. Do you think I could give you a son? I know you're going to give me a son. Great. We're good. No, I'm afraid again. All right. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. The fact that Abraham did is weird. Like, I would have been like, I don't, I don't think I heard you rightly. What happens here is it's actually a, an ancient practice. Because Abraham's the beginning of the Hebrew slash Christian faith. So up until this point, Abraham was just following the culture of whatever it was that he was in. The, the Near Eastern Akkadian culture is what he was following. And whenever somebody thought that they were going to get something, and they knew they had to be responsible for it, here's what they would do. It's like a really weird wedding ceremony. They would take animals. We got the kids in the room, so you know what he did with the animals. And he put part of them over here and part of them over here, just like you guys have animals, animals. And then the person who cut them would stand at the beginning of this aisle of death and walk down it. 
And he would say, if I fail in any moment of this covenant, may my body become like these animals, to my left and to my right. So if the covenant Abraham's making is a covenant with God, and Abraham has to walk down an aisle and say, if I fail this, may my body become like one of these animals, fear and darkness and dread would overcome me too. Like if I was making a covenant with Anthony, I would think maybe he wouldn't realize if I messed up. If he was making it with me, he'd be terrified. If you're making it with God, you're walking down the aisle knowing you're going to mess up, knowing that your body's going to become like these pieces split in half. Something extraordinary happens before Abraham's about to walk down that aisle. And we put together some kind of animation here so that we can understand what's about to happen. Abraham separates these pieces and he's about to walk down this aisle and confess something that will lead for sure to his death. Do we agree? Uh, Just before Abraham can take the first step down that aisle, a manifestation of God shows up and it goes down the aisle. Abraham's about to walk down and say, if I fail on any level of this covenant, may my body be split in half. And before he can take a step, this vision goes down the aisle. This smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, light in the darkness, goes down this aisle. And Abraham never has to walk down it. In Hebrews, it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham before the gospel was ever revealed to us. What is Abraham seeing here? Abraham is about to walk down this aisle and say, if I make one mistake, I won't get the blessing, but I'll also lose my very life. And before he could make that covenant, God pushes him aside and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk down the aisle. And I'm going to say, Abraham, if you fail in any bit of this covenant, my body will become like these animals. You don't have to walk down this aisle. And so when we look at the labeling of this animation, we realize that Abraham sees a vision in the spirit of the cross and Calvary. And Abraham is realizing there's a blessing that I know is giving my life meaning. I'm struggling to believe you'll give it to me. But my deeper struggle, if I'm willing to be honest, is that I'm actually afraid to get the blessing. Because if I get it, see, it's one thing, I could, I could feel motivated when you don't give me what I'm asking for, because then I can hide behind the fact that my life would be better if I got it. But in reality, I'm terrified to get the vision, because I know that if you actually give me this vision, my body cannot bear the weight of the promise you have for me. I was standing... Maybe in 2011 or 12, I was standing right here, and I was still working in Katona, and I felt like I needed to make a decision in my life to jump into an actual career that I could be in for the rest of my life if pastoring didn't happen. And I was standing right there, and I, I immediately came to grips with issues in my life, in my administrative abilities, that I thought, to actually go get like a big person job, like a real adult job, um, they're going to actually expect something of me. I was like, I was event planning and playing with children for a living. Like, they all thought I was amazing all day. And I just left with my ego through the door. Like, these children love me. 
And so I can't understand why the adults don't. <laughs> Listen to your kids, right? And so I'm standing right here, and I'm having a very real moment saying, God, I'm going to move into, I'm going to make a decision to choose a career. And if you never call me to pastor, I'll just assume that you're calling me to pastor in that career. I made that covenant with him right there. I said, I'm not going to agonize over this center. I'm going to stop waiting to be a pastor. I'm not even going to wait for it anymore. I'm going to go, and I'm going to find a job that can provide for my family for the rest of our life, and I will pastor there however I can every day of my life, and assistant pastor here as best as I can. You deal with the rest. And instantly, I had this sense of freedom, and then the sun went down in seconds, and I realized, I don't know that I'm good enough. I don't know that I'm, I have what it takes to make this decision. And I opened my eyes, I was facing this way, but I opened my eyes, and our overseer, Randall Worley, is standing directly in front of my face. And so first I'm like, you could back up a foot? I mean, I know he likes the dramatic flair and everything like that, but I'm like, dude, if I leaned forward, I would accidentally would have kissed you just now. Like, and, you know, and I'm a white guy in the spirit, so we can sway. That's like the best I can do. So there was a chance... I open my eyes, freak out for a second, and he looks at me and says, I just walked all the way over here to tell you, God wants you to know, don't be afraid. He's going to give you what you need after you make your transition. The sun didn't necessarily come up, but it at least went to that part of the day where you knew it was coming up because it got a little bit lighter out. That's what God is doing for Abraham here. God is saying to Abraham, you do not bear the responsibility to hold up the end, your end of this covenant because I'm going to enact both sides of the covenant. I'm going to be the initiator of it, and I'm going to bear, bear the responsibility for the failure of it. And so what does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus is now, in the text we read, he's standing at the pinnacle of the narrative of Israel, and he's looking at the son of Abraham, Jerusalem, and he's saying, son of Abraham, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your father Abraham did what needed to be done, and you now have failed. Here's the other thing about getting blessed. We just want the blessing, but we don't sometimes care what happens to the blessing when we're gone. I just want my child to get saved, but God wants your child's great-grandchildren to be saved too. There's more than just that moment. And now Jesus is looking at Abraham. He's looking at what Isaac has become, and he's saying, there is a fire coming, and I want to hover over you like a hen hovers over its chicks, and you won't get under my wings, but this fire is coming, and it's going to burn your house down. Please hear what I'm saying. And I want this to open a huge can of worms. And I want you to wrestle with this for a long time. But what Jesus is doing right now is Jesus is telling us what our life is supposed to be. But listen to me. Jesus is pronouncing wrathful judgment over Jerusalem. He's saying, your house is coming down. It will be left to you desolate because you didn't get under my wings when I wanted to protect you. But then he walks down the aisle himself. He pronounces judgment And then he suffers the judgment he pronounces. His judgment and his mercy are the exact same thing. Judgment happens on the cross. 
he's up there with two criminals. Isn't it interesting that Abraham had to split two animals apart and Jesus hangs in between two criminals, humanity split in half and broken. And Jesus is in the aisle in between the two broken pieces. And he says to them, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I am walking down the You are being judged, but I'm being judged with you. Has anybody here heard about like the law court model of the atonement where like you went into jail or you went into the courtroom and you were guilty and then all of a sudden it turns out God is the judge and you're like, oh no, he knows. And then the, the, the judgment is pronounced, you're guilty and before the bailiff can come and handcuff you, Jesus is like, you know what, let me go to jail for them. And then off to jail, Jesus goes and out of the courtroom you go. This is a problem. Because number one, the judge is also Jesus. But in that model, I leave the courtroom the same broken sinner I walked in with. I leave free, but the same person who's going to get myself into the mess again. Here's what the gospel is saying happens. God the judge, or should I say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the judge, say guilty. And you go to jail. And when you get into jail... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in orange with you. And suddenly there's a great earthquake. So that the foundation of the prison doors were shaken. And out of jail you and God go. And something on the way has changed you. And you're not the person you walked in as anymore because you tasted judgment. And the judgment worked, but it wasn't forever. That's what Jesus is doing. The cross is judgment. And he says, on the cross, I'm getting judged with you. So every day, if you want mercy, you got to take up your cross. What is the cross? Judgment. If you want mercy, you got to walk to where there's judgment. Abraham, you don't have to walk down the aisle. Why? Because you're going to fail. So I'm going to walk down the aisle for you. And when we fail together, my body will be enough. That's what we're celebrating here. But what does this mean for us as a church? And this is my closing point. What does this mean for us as a church? Jesus suffers the judgment he pronounces. Jesus suffers the judgment he pronounces. Jesus and Pontius Pilate stand in stark, crest, uh, stark contrast to each other, which is why Pontius Pilate's name shows up in the creed. I've often wondered of all the people who can show up in one of the most famous prayers in the history of the Christian religion. Why is Pontius Pilate in there? Like, I feel like most of us have made better decisions than Pontius Pilate. Sometimes Jacqueline calls me Pontius Pilate. I'll tell you exactly why. Because here's his big move. Everyone's telling me to do so many different things. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pronounce a judgment... And then I'm going to wash my hands of it and walk away. Men, we're inclined to do this. You know what? You all figure it out. I'm leaving. You know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go here to vacation instead of there. Now I'm going to my room. Nobody talk to me. It's just mayhem. Ah! My brother's not here. He, he hasn't taken his family to Disneyland yet. And every time I go over there for the last, like, 20 years, I just bring it up. <laughs> And he's always like, you know, Frank, he's always like, All right, you know, we're, we're going to go one day, and then he just leaves. <laughs> so it happens, Franco, when you don't come to church on Sunday. 
What, what happened? Oh, yeah. Judgment and Jesus. And... He washes his hands of it. He pronounces a verdict and leaves, and he doesn't participate in the verdict he announced. Jesus announces a judgment, and he stays present in the worst part of that judgment. Your house will be left to you desolate. And then he says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Same word, temple house. And they say, it took 40 years to build it, and he said, I'm talking about the temple of my body. Jesus says, your building is going to be left to you desolate, but I'm going to become desolate too. Desolate. I'm going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to enter the desolation I pronounced over you so that when you feel desolate, you're still in my presence. This is why David can say, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. Where's the first place Jesus goes when he dies? He goes to the deepest place of judgment. And he says, the worst judgment you can face doesn't happen without my presence there. Are we like that? Do we critique, but then walk away from the critique and leave the person feeling hopeless? Do we judge somebody for the way that they are and then walk away without bearing the burden of helping them? Are we the vision that God gave Abraham in the night when he was feeling dread and darkness and God sent him a vision of light and darkness? Jesus says, you are the light of the world, which means the world is dark besides us. We're the only light. And if we're Pontius Pilate constantly judging them and then washing our hands of it, we're wrong. We judge too many people. We call too many people enemies of the cross. We throw our hands up when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Two times he says Jerusalem, and he's indicating that you have repeatedly, you have repeatedly not heeded the voice of the prophets, and now the God who gave those prophets their words in their mouth is now the man standing in front of you saying, how many times have I wanted to gather you? And time after time after time, you wouldn't have any of it. Now your house is going to be left to you desolate, but I'm still not going anywhere. My affections have not changed. My love has only grown stronger. How many times have we said to somebody, you know, enough is enough? God would never say that to us. Jesus is God never saying enough is enough. That's what we're called to. That word that Krista gave, we are called to be the light that shines in other people's darkness. To not just judge, but bear the burden of the judgment that we're going to pronounce. Or if we don't want to bear it, stop judging. If you want to judge, and there's a time to, be there to bear the weight of it. If you're going to wash your hands and walk away, don't judge. Don't say anything. Who are we going to be? Pontius Pilate and wash our hands? Or Jesus and say, yeah, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt me with you. I'm going to be here with you. So what do we do right now? Praise team, I'm really sorry. What do we do right now? Look at this. Ian pointed this out on Thursday because he's a genius up there. He said, you know, you're going to stand there and you're going to tell them the Eucharist is way on your left, left, and way on your right. He said, isn't it interesting 
that there's these broken pieces that are spread across the room. I said, that is interesting. And I said, you know what else is interesting? When they come to the table and receive that brokenness, they're going to all leave up the same aisle, but they're not walking down it anymore. There's no more death on the left and the right. Jesus has already been split in two. He's already reached out to the left and to the right as far as he possibly can on the cross. And so when you all come down these aisles, you come down that aisle, that carcass death. But when you leave, you walk down an aisle like a bride adorned for her husband. And then we walk out of here ready to do that for the world we live in. If we don't stop judging people and washing our hands of it, how will they ever, ever hear the gospel? You know where I was on Friday? And it took me a minute to make this decision, but I went to a mosque and sat through a whole service, uncomfortable as you could ever possibly imagine, and standing out more than anyone has ever stood out in that place in history. (laughs) I wore this, and I wore this, thinking all they wanted me to do was stand outside. They asked me to come in, and I'm like, wow. And I start to hear them pray. And I'm wrestling. Should I be here? Should I not? And it dawns on me. What if somebody said to me, you were sitting with sinners? I would say, wow, you just really put me in good company. Because I know someone who sat with tax collectors and sinners and had the same critique. I sat in that room, and I prayed this prayer over a hundred times. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And all I did was I felt their pain from what happened in New Zealand. I wept with them. I felt uncomfortable because they always feel uncomfortable. I felt out of place. I'm not going to sit there and make doctrinal theological decisions about being there. Jesus would have been there. Jesus would have been there. And it wouldn't have messed up his faith. And he's not condoning everything that's going on, but he would have been there. And he would have gotten criticized for it. And I thought, this is is what the church should be doing. We should be feeling uncomfortable on behalf of a world that's uncomfortable. We should feel out of place on behalf of a world that's out of place. And we should sit there and in whatever way we can, pray the Holy Spirit on it as hard as we possibly can. Let's stand to our feet. Ask the worship team to come back up here. We're going to finish that worship set. We're going to come to the table. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to intercede. After you come to the table, I want you to enjoy the worship team creating an atmosphere where we can now pray this sermon into existence. We can pray this into the person to our left and to our right, that we would be the kind of people who would either be silent and not judge at all or judge and bear the burden of it with the world. I think it needs to be the second one. I think we need to know what's wrong, but then bear the weight of that wrongness with the people, with each other, with our families, with our church, with our Jewish and Muslim neighbors. Let God sort out sheep and goats. That's for him to do. Let's just be there feeling the weight of what everybody's feeling. The image of God was dented in New Zealand. The image of God was shot and killed in New Zealand. If your first thought is, what is their religion? There's no room for that here. 
we have to feel it with them. If our kids aren't following the Lord before we ever talk to them, we should feel the dissonance, feel the distance, feel the gap, and sit with it and feel it for them. If our friends and coworkers aren't walking with him, our job is to feel it first. Bear that weight. Be understanding. Be patient. Be kind. Don't call someone a non-Christian and then be upset and and flabbergasted when they do non-Christian things. Know it's going to happen and bear it. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Where do we get the strength for it? At the table. Because what is the table if not Jesus while we were still sinners bearing all of the weight and all the brokenness? How many people here have some stuff broken in your life? How many people have some stuff spilled in your life? The broken bread and the spilled juice are the only broken and spilled things that heal and clean up broken and spilled things. We come down disjointed, fragmented animals and we leave walking down an aisle as a bride adorned for her husband. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here. We thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for knowing what we need to know before we realize it and for interrupting our day, interrupting our life and speaking a word into the church that we may become salt and light and know better what that means. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And we pray, Father God, that you would fall on us and land on these broken and spilled pieces and make us for the world the very presence of your son. That when we leave here, we would be bread willing to be consumed. When you were betrayed, you gave. And I pray that as we walk out of here, sheep amongst wolves, we would remember that you're the one who called Herod a fox and you were the lamb. And so if you were okay being a lamb among foxes, we're going to be okay being sheep among wolves. And so we thank you for the presence that you'll put on us this week. That we'll leave here and we will be evidence of the resurrection and the hope. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.